Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. For further information about Northridge Church, visit us online at northridgethompson.com. All right. How many of y'all saw, have seen the movie? It's in the top 10 of every single movie listings from, gosh, I guess from the 40s. Casablanca. How many of y'all have ever seen that movie? How many of you have not seen that movie? Y'all need to watch that. That's like a timeless great. Humphrey Bogard, and uh, he is, plays Rick, and he has this wife, I mean, this girl that he and this other guy are kind of, there's a, a love triangle, there's all sorts of uh, anti-Nazi propaganda coming out of World War II, of, going into World War II, and uh, just some beautiful music, and, and just the way the whole uh, movie is written, you need to take a chance to, to see that. But those of you who have seen that movie, there's a, there's a line in that movie Y'all know what it is? It's very well known. If you say, how many of y'all seen it again? What was the, what was the line? Y'all remember the line? No, not that one. That's what you do when you open it up in the community. In the, in the. Y'all ever heard the ter- play it again, Sam? Y'all know that? You know, there's a song that uh, Lisa, uh, I can't remember her real name. Um, anyway, Lisa asked Sam, the African-American uh, piano player, to play this song that she really loved. And then Humphrey Bogart, there's a, there's a scene in the movie where he, he had heard that she, he had played the song, and he comes back in and he says, play it again, Sam. How many of y'all remember that? They never said that in the movie. Did you know that? That is one of the most misquoted in all of the movies. And again, it, even though y'all haven't seen it, it just don't, means y'all don't get out much. But just the movie is one of the most watched. It's, it's even ranks up there higher than Gone with the Wind on top ten. And you know that famous one-liner, and don't say that either, okay? But uh, it's misquoted. He never says in the movie, nor does anyone say, play it again, Sam. Yet it's, it's quoted, misquoted all the time. What about this? Let's move into something maybe Pastor David's excited about. How many of y'all seen any of the Star Wars trilogies? What about the Empire Strikes Back? I know you've seen it like 1,500 times, right? There is a part in that movie where, again, misquoted, that uh, we quote all the time. We've seen, it's been uh, paradised. It's in all the different, you know, Saturday Night Lives and so forth. But there's a part in there where uh, Darth Vader's um, character, who is actually Luke's father, and they get into a fight, of course, and then later on, you know, he, the question, of course, and what does he say, David, what does he say? Luke, I am your father. Do y'all know that he never said that in the movie? Did you know that? Go back and watch it. He never says that. The question is posed to him. He says, uh, he has Luke, his son, at the time they were fighting with the, you know, that whole thing. Lightsabers. Thanks, Cody. Praise God. There you go. And, and they were fighting, and then, of course, he cuts off Luke's arm, and he says, uh, did, did Obi-Wan tell you who I was? He, tell you about your father? And he said, yeah, he told me my father was dead. And he says, no, I am your father. He didn't say Luke. I mean, from, now you say, man, that's just kind of splitting hairs. It's not because it's misquoted. Or what about this one? How many of you seen Kevin Costner's movie, Field of Dreams? All right, somebody tell me, somebody different. Cody, you don't get to answer. David, you don't get to answer. And who said that? What is it? If you build it, they will come. How many of you remember that? They never said that. Uh-uh. Did you know that? He didn't say that. He said, they said, if you build it, he will come. Speaking about his father. So I say all that to say this. Not a big deal if we watch a movie and we live our life thinking that one line was said when in fact it wasn't. And, and you know, really we're splitting hairs. You know, Luke, I'm your father, or no, that I'm your father. Not a real big deal. But it just goes to show that movies that are great movies, that we all walk away and with some proliferation, we have walked away and said, this is what it says when in fact it doesn't say that at all. 
Now you say, why does that matter in the context of church? Because here's what happens. If we do that in movies that we have videos of that we can watch, and some of us have watched them over and over and over again, and it goes right under our radar, what if we do that with other things? You know the old story where you tell somebody a story, I tell Keith something, and it goes all the way down the list. By the time it gets back there uh, to Derek, a uh, guy, Derek has, is going to tell me a completely different story. Because even though I told Keith this and he told Ashley, each time it begins to change. And by the time it gets back there, we're so far away from the truth, it's not even close. But guys, let me tell you something. We do that with the Word of God. We have grown up. Studying the Bible. Many of you were raised in church even nine months before you were born. You were in church with your mom. And yet we take scriptures. We take promises. Let's do it that way. We take promises of God that aren't even in the Bible. And we've built, Marty, a doctrinal position, a theological argument. And I'm going to show you three of those tonight. They're really fallacies. They're not in the Bible. And and if we misquote these, then we mislive these. We misappropriate them. Then we live out our life. And then when we get to that really, really dangerous place, that really kind of just pressed down in a pit. Because let's be honest. Tonight in this room, on this campus, there are people in here absolutely, completely, utterly depressed in this room tonight. In this room tonight, there are people literally, and I don't say this with any joy or any gloating to know that this is existing. There are people this far from saying, God, you know what? I've tried you, and it's just not working. If, if we really, really go out there and say what the elephant in the room, there are marriages in here on the rocks. There are young people that are, being, that are faced with the temptations, men that are faced with the temptations of pornography and all the other things going on. God knows what on the internet because it's, it's, it's literally right at our fingertips. In fact, there are scars in this room tonight that you and I can't see on the lives of every single mother, father, boy or girl in this room, notwithstanding the person standing in front of you. They're scars. They're hurts. And what we do is we take Scripture. Maybe a preacher threw it out there. Maybe it was a, a, a grandmother antidote. Maybe it was something that she threw out, a godly woman back in the day. Or, or maybe, you know, like the golden rule. We somehow think that's a biblical Scripture. It's not. Doing to others as you would have them do it. It's not in the Bible. But there's others that I believe that are profoundly rocking the world of the church at large today in the community. And I want to give you these three tonight that I believe to be fallacies and I believe to be so detrimental that we're claiming them as promises. And here's what happens. When they unfold and the promise that we have claimed didn't come into realization, we feel like what? Our faith is not there. We feel like that we have failed. We feel like God is unhappy with us. I've shared with you many, many times, on, on, either on, even on my dad's uh, passing, how I had the faith of a grain of mustard seed. Matter of fact, I would be so bold to say I had the faith the size of a watermelon. And yet my dad died. What do you do with that if your faith is strong and then somebody comes over here and, and misquotes or just takes out of context the verse that says, but you know the Bible says... That if you or two or three will go agree anything that's touching it, you will have what you're asking. How many of y'all heard that? Or what about this one? That, 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 that if you have a grain of mustard seed, you can look at that mountain over there. And I was looking at it a moment ago when we were worshiping. I could look at that mountain and I could say, be ye removed and be cast into that lake and it will be done. 
I venture to say, and I say this without apology, you stand here and speak to a piece of land all day long, it's not moving. But in the context of that promise, you've got to realize that Jesus was rebuking his disciples for not being able to cast out a demon, and that's the very thing he told them to do. He had called them to do that very thing, and they didn't do it. He said, if you'd have just had a little bit of faith, and that's the application. I'll give you three tonight that I believe to be profoundly misappropriated, fallacies. Number one, if you want to take notes, if not, just listen, because I think tonight can really, really help us all out. Number one, and this one is, is said all the time. Mamas and daddies, we say it to our kids. Everything is going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Man, that preaches, David. That, I mean, that's, that's what mamas and daddies have to tell their kids, for goodness sakes. What, what, what do we really tell them? I don't know what's going to happen. You can't do that because mamas and daddies have to have the answers. How many of you remember the day you grew up and you realized your parents weren't perfect? How many of you parents realized when you weren't perfect? Jeremiah 6, don't turn there. Jeremiah 6, 13 to 14 says it this way, God speaking. From the least to the greatest, each is eager to profit. From profit to priest, each trades in dishonesty. They treat the wound of my people, he says, as it were nothing. All is well, all is well, they insist, when in fact, nothing is well. That's God speaking to Jeremiah, the prophet. As I said before, we have to be careful with this because if we look in this room tonight and we look at the anxiety and the depression and the scars and the, and the, and the things that are going on, yet when we walk in this room and we do it every week, we do it every week at Wednesday night, we do it every night at youth group, we, do, we walk in, how are you doing? What, what do you say if I say, how are you doing? Somebody tell me, what do you, how are you doing? I'm fine. You're not fine. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to convince you you're not fine, but the reality is, is most of the time we're not fine. Everything may not be okay in us. Everything may not be okay as it unfolds. The reality is that the Apostle Paul probably said this best. And I want you to listen to the words of this because if I, miss, if I misunderstand this and misappropriate it, I want you guys to, to shout at me. But be, be, be kind. Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ. How many of y'all know that verse? Nevertheless, I what? I live. Yet not I, but Christ that lives within me. And the life which I do now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. What do you mean? The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to not be okay. You can speak I'm fine all day long. What if, for example, the Apostle Paul in, in the Roman prison in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 4 in the doxology of his life and he begins to speak about how, how he knew that his, his time had come. He had fought the good fight, which inclines me to believe that there's a bad fight of faith out there as well. That, that I'm not suggesting that just because you're not doing okay that you walk through life and somebody says, hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, I got this neck pain, I got this back pain, I got this stomach pain, my husband's crazy, my kids are running crazy, my dog, you know. I, I'm not suggesting that. But I'm, I'm just saying that if we take the mindset and we try to grab onto this promise that with God everything is going to be okay, Paul is saying, no, 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 I died. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not me that lives, it's Christ that lives within me. See, it's, it's okay to not be okay, David. 
He says that all the time. It's okay to be in the church that don't have it all figured out. It's, it's okay to not be okay. Because when I'm not okay, I look to the hills where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. You see, when I'm not okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my petitions before Him. I'm going to cry out to God. When I can admit, listen, Ben, Ben and, and Chad and some of these guys, every week they come in here. God bless them. They come in here. They have music. They have band. They have a guy running sound. They have door greeters. They have people provide food. And one, two, three, five, eight people show up. And, and you know what? That's not okay. Why? Because we know this town is dying. This, this, do you know when the biggest church ought to be at Northridge Church? On Thursday night at 7 o'clock. For celebrate recovery because people are dying. But, but is it because somebody has walked by them and said, you know, man, I know you're addicted. I know you've lost everything. Everything's going to be okay. And in their word, they're going, dude, you don't even have a clue what it means to live my life one day. It's not okay. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm sweating. I don't know where my next meal's coming from. It's not okay. So I say, it's okay to not be okay. You see, because what I believe is that when it's not okay, that when we come to church, that there's a little bit of okay that gets in me, and his name is Jesus. You see, there are people that you pass every single day, pastors, pastors' wives, deacons, people that you look to that are heroes in the faith for you. There's nothing wrong with that, but no, they're fallible. Know that they fail. And know that everything is not okay even with them. There are fears. Yeah, but Mark God said in his word, you know, you're not to have the spirit of fear. I get it, but we're still afraid, aren't we? How many of you are afraid still? Because it's not okay all the time. As we move forward on this, we realize that out of that comes an opportunity. Because when I'm not okay... It's funny how when I'm not okay, I spend more time with God. I spend more time in the Word. I spend more time praying for my spouse. I spend more time, I mean, listen, just to be real honest with you, today was not okay for me because my, my grandbaby's at home sick, and that's not okay. Because with everything that can happen, and you guys know it, I mean, you look at, look at people in this room that have got to that place, it's going to be okay, and it didn't get okay. And you know what? When somebody gets sick with cancer, it's not okay with me, because I've seen what being okay does. It takes your loved one, and that's not okay. I don't have my dad today, and that's not Okay. I see little boys disrespecting their father because they think he'll be around forever, and that's not stinking okay. Somebody gave us a fallacy a long time ago and said, if we get in church and we get saved, it's going to be okay. Secondly, this one I might get some cups thrown at me. God will not put more on you than you can bear. Not scriptural, guys. Because in your flesh, I've been there. I've been at the breaking point. Has anybody else been at the breaking point? Were it not for the Holy Spirit, go back to the verse. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Nevertheless, I'm dead, Paul said. 
Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm alive. Oh, but by the way, here's a little cachet to that. I'm not alive. It's Christ that lives in me. Oh, he put more on me than I can bear because that's what killed me. That's how I died. But then he came alive in me. And then he took over. He didn't become my co-pilot. Tear that, tear that sign off your car if you see that one around there. He's my pilot. He's my maintenance man. He's my instructor. He's the vehicle, for goodness sakes. He's everything. Now, let, me give you some, let me give you a little bit on this. 1 Corinthians 10. Here's the verse we quote to Mary with. God will not put upon you any, any more than you can bear. There's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. Aren't you glad of that? There's no temptation but such is common to man, but God is faithful. Who would not allow you to be tempted above that which you can bear. And with that temptation, he'll make a way of escape. That is not what that means. Because you have to understand the words here. You see, the Bible says in James, Let no man say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God. Temptation, God is not tempted with evil, nor can he tempt any man with evil. A man is tempted when he's what? Drawn away of his own lust. You're not tempted because God is tempting you. Oh, wait, wait a minute, Mark. What about this word over here where God tempts us and we're supposed to? No, that's called a trial. See, the trial of your faith is more precious than gold. See, the word there, if you look in the Greek words here, and you'd have to, you have to be a student of the word to understand what I'm about to tell you. What he's saying here in 1 Corinthians is not the same word about being tempted by the evil one. You see, the evil one dangles that carrot in front of your face. He wants you to fall. He wants you to fail. He wants you to disrupt your testimony. He wants you to bruise your family. He wants you to do all those things that, that it will not be okay. Some things you can't recover from. That's what temptation is. Temptation is the tool to get you to fall. God does not tempt you. God will try you. And the promise here in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 is there is no trial. There is, listen to me, hear me. There's no trial that is overtaking you, but such is common to man. That's a promise. Do you know what that means? There is nothing new under the sun, the Ecclesiastes writer says. Do you know, do you know why the enemy... The enemy continues to throw things at you like promiscuity and infidelity and things of that nature and lust. Do you know why he continues to do that to us? Because it's thinking works. A man after God's own heart, King David, a writer of a lot of the Psalms, a man who just poetically, beautifully just, oh my gosh, God cast not your presence from me. I mean, just the beautiful words, the poetic words of the Psalms. My God, my God, why has that forsaken me? Psalm 22, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. But yet in that moment of tempting, he was tempted with infidelity. The very thing that would make him fall is the very thing that for 6,000 years Satan has been using. There's nothing that's overtaken you, but such is common to man. That, that gives me hope. You know why? Because I should be able to learn from my past mistakes. I should be able to learn. How many of you have seen the movie? Is, is it courageous? What's the movie where the guy throws the computer outside and starts beating it up? Fireproof. Thank you. You say, man, that's just crazy. Now, here's what I think. I think if there's something in your life that is tempting, get rid of it. Get rid of it. I mean, it sounds real sexy to just fast Facebook for 21 days. That's really cool. That's awesome. God bless you. Praise God. 
But if you get back on there on day 22 and you're looking at things you ought not be looking at, you need to close your account. Nothing, nothing that you hadn't heard of before because there's nothing that's overtaken us but such is common to man. The hope is that when we see this is that there is a point in time where God will put things upon us, watch this, that we can't bear. There is a point in time where it gets so heavy that we can't bear it. Once again, interestingly, how the same is number one, the same is number two. That's when you turn to God. He says, cast your cares upon me for what? For I, I care for you. Bring your burdens, bring your petitions before the throne of God. Why? Because he's a caring God. He's a loving God. If you're broken, he has the fix. If you're afraid, he has the antidote. If you're dying, then watch this. Don't miss this. When we die, our life begins. We don't have to look at the fear of death anymore. The Bible says that he's taken out the sting of death. But there's a point in my life and in your life, and some of you are standing in it right now, there's a point where you can no longer bear it. There is a point that you cannot carry it anymore. And as I said this morning, if you were in church, listen, there was a point where our Savior in his humanity, carrying the cross, the, the epitome of destruction, the crucifixion, that's where we get the word excruciating from in the context of pain. It comes from that crucifixion. Knowing what he was going to do. He created the tree that he was crucified on, for goodness sakes. He created the Roman soldiers that would pierce him in the side. He created Pilate, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee. Yet in his humanity, as he carried that cross... He got to a point where he fell to the ground more in his humanity than he could bear. Do you see that? That, that's, That's not a promise that I can hold on to. But God, I love that part, don't you? But God gives us a help in our time of need. It comes sometimes by way of people, by a spouse. I can't tell you how many times that I have said things that probably were just frustration Stephanie would kind of quicken me and make up my mind for me and tell me I was wrong. You know how it works. When I first came to Thomaston, going on nine years ago now, back back to Thomaston, eight years ago, whatever it was, eight years ago, I told her, I said, well, I, you know, I, I guess rush is over because I, there's no way Thomaston is, I mean, it's, you know, kind of a really poor town and there's no way that it can support rush and we can do what we're doing. She said, you know, God put this in you. Don't let it die. How many people, because it was more than I could bear, how many people would never have heard the gospel if I'd have died, if I'd have just killed over and said, because I couldn't bear it anymore. See, God puts the people in your life to encourage you. But you know what else he does? He also gets us in a place where we realize that we're putting too much emphasis on our own joy and our own happiness and our own comfort. Because we don't like to be uncomfortable. So really that verse is a promise to our flesh. It's really a secular point of view, isn't it? Because here's what it's really saying. God will not put more on you than you can bear. It's really saying that God doesn't want you uncomfortable. The problem is that that goes against the grain of the entire word of God. Because the very fact that he sent you a comforter really speaks to the point that you're going to be uncomfortable. 
You know what else I realize? Is that in fact, the opposite of this is true. Do you know what he told us? You will suffer for my sake. I, I know that doesn't preach good. You know, we do a brochure. You know, we'll put a little part in the middle going, hey, join our church, get right with God. You're going to suffer. <laughs> I want to be a part of that church. <laughs> Here's what I believe, and I, and I just jotted this down before I came. Paul reminds us that the sufferings are not something apart from God. They're not necessarily sent by God, as I'm going to show you in a moment, but rather places where we encounter God. You know, sometimes God just has a way of getting us back to Him. And you know how He does that? By making us uncomfortable. To making it, hear me, to allowing it to become unbearable. Here's the last one. Definitely going to get some problems. If it's not in here, it'll be in the parking lot. So David's walking out with me. How many of you believe that God is a sovereign God? That speaks to his attribute of being absolutely in control. Their entire, and please, I'm not going to get off on this too much, but I I want you to hear me for just a moment because I promise you I'm going somewhere. Their entire religions that pose the point that if God is sovereign, and I'm just going to cut to the chase, okay? There's five points of this, but I'm going to cut to the chase. John Calvin, one of the major reformers, came to a point in his faith study that if God is sovereign, then we have no free will. If God is sovereign... And the Bible says he has ordained things and that that, that we were predestined for things. Then there's no point in it. And and again, there's a little cynicism in my my voice. I get it because it's ludicrous to me that the intellects and these guys are so much smarter. They have forgotten more than I'll ever know. Yet that even applies in Scripture because he says, just come as a child. And I can do that. But here's what he says. John Calvin poses this point that if God is sovereign, and he is, and he knows who's going to be saved and who's not, how you're going to die, then basically your choices are futile at best. It really, to some circles of five-point Calvinism, which we call hyper-Calvinism, some of the people, not all of them, some are not, but some of those people are not even, from an evangelical standpoint, they they don't even care to share their faith. Some, Some do. Because some think there's still an outworking of the preaching and the, and the evangelistic notion that that's a part of. But the problem with that is that still comes back to that notion that if God is fully sovereign, that, that literally, and this is what they do. They don't like to say this. It's like a disclaimer they don't put on the website for reformers. Is they don't look at it and say, here's what we're really saying. That God is sovereign. He knows who's going to be saved. He knows how you're going to die. He knows who you're going to marry. And he does. It's called an infinite God. But they go one step further, and here's what they do. Please hear me. They, here's what they believe. that They just might as well just go, you're going to be saved. You're saved. You're saved. You're doomed. You're doomed. You're saved. You're doomed. You're saved. Doomed. Doomed. Saved. And that's it. And it doesn't matter what you do or what we do. The only problem is that goes absolutely against the grain of everything Scripture teaches in the context of free will. You and I, One of the greatest yet most detrimental gifts we were given is we are a free moral agent. Look at the garden. 
Watch this. Infinite mind of God, sovereignty of God says this. I'm putting them in utopia. I'm putting them in perfection. Going to live forever. They don't even have to get clothing, for goodness sakes. They don't have to wear makeup. A woman can have a baby, and she won't even, I mean, she won't even feel a pain. It's just going to be a beautiful thing. I mean, she's back playing and doing whatever. You know, the trees are bearing fruit. The animals walk, hey, what's up, Mr. Lion? You know, that whole thing. And, and, and the guys out there working. How many of you guys like to work in the yard? I mean, I love to work in the yard. I love to do it. But I don't like the fact that it's hard. And you sweat. You know, that was a curse. I mean, we could have worked in the yard. I mean, I'm going to go pick some fruit. I'm going to go over here and play in the garden. And you never sweat. I mean, everything would have been perfect. Yet he said, you know, there's one thing I don't want you to do. And I'm really, really, really serious about this. Because I'm walking with you in the cool of the day. Because it just never got hot there. It was always perfect. No storms, no rain, nothing. Grass is growing, everything. Do you get that? And he, he looks at me and says, there's a tree over here, though, called, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, t- don't, don't, don't eat from that one. Free will. Did he know that they would eat from it? Yes or no? You doggone right he knew. Because the Bible says Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He knew they would fall, so he had a plan of redemption already in place. But watch this. The free will came by way of man's intuition of, I choose this rather than this. And the second this was really the perfect will of God. See, if it were not for our free will, we never would have fallen. But then marry that together with scriptures. You know what Jesus said? I love this. Because when Jesus says something, it really brings into a doctrinal truth in a big way. You know what he says? I would that none would perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the Savior of the world saying that. We also have to realize that as we look at this, this fallacy, that it's all a part of God's plan. It's just all a part of God's plan. Do you think for one minute that God really planned? Hear me now, planned. There's a big word. For Adolf Hitler to open uh, Auschwitz prison and murder all of the Jews. Really? Do I really think that was God's plan? Tell that to the people who were in the prison. Tell that to the families who starved to death and were burned alive and buried by by shovels still moving in the dirt. That's, that's, That's God's plan? Are you kidding me? Was it God's plan for the children of Israel to come out of Egypt and start murmuring against the holy God's plan to bring them out of bondage? It's not God's plan. That's man's free will. You know what God's plan? God's plan is to bless you exceedingly, abundantly, above that which you can ask, think, or imagine. Your plan is to do it your way. And your way steps outside of God's plan. And then God comes back and covers it up. Not God's plan that a man start drinking and just say, I'm just going to try it. I'm a social drinker. Next thing, man, this is awesome. Man. Just knocking the edge off. Before you know it, he is a, an addicted alcoholic, and he's destroyed his marriage. That is not God's plan. God's plan was seen and realized in the garden at the first institution on earth ever ordained by God, man and woman. It was good, he said. It was very good. That woman is a completer, a helpmeet. Not a doormat. Not somebody to be beat upon. Tell the woman who's been beaten by that jack wagon husband, and that's part of God's plan. No, it's not. That man has free will. He has chosen to deny the word of God and love her the way Christ loved the church. That is not God's plan. It's not all a part of God's plan. 
But because God is an all-sufficient God, he can come back and cover up our mistakes. See, Romans 8.28 is the verse we land on there. All things work together for good for those who call, and those who love the Lord are called according to his purpose. First of all, hear me, who is he speaking about? Let's say it again. All things work together for those who, say it with me, love the Lord and they're called according to his purpose. That's you and I, ch- children of God. That, that doesn't even apply to people who reject the love of Jesus Christ and say no to the cross. They've already stepped out of God's plan. Everything that happens outside of that is their plan. Why does that matter? I'll, t- I'll tell you why that matters. There was a couple in LaGrange several years ago. Many years ago, actually. I was, I was a young pastor, youth pastor. Stephanie was teaching over at a Christian school. And... Um, this very well-known couple in the community, something happened to their, their child. And the child was uh, uh, in a coma. And um, I went up there to pray with the child, but this other pastor had, had, had beat me to it. And um, I'd never forget as long as I live him telling that family, kind of goes in the grain with all of these three. You know, it's all part of God's plan, and, you know, it, it'll... All things will work out. God's not going to put... He, he started just dropping these fallacies. And at the time, just to be honest with you, I wasn't astute enough to, to recognize them. I just... That sounds good to me too. Give me encouragement. You know what he told them? Isaiah 53 says, He's already healed your boy. And that didn't hit me right. I thought, whoa, 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 wait a minute, dog. You know, I, I don't... That ain't what that meant. Your baby's already healed. That's what he told him. He said, now... Oh, my gosh, this makes me sick to say it. He said, now it depends on your faith. That baby died. What do you think that did? What what do you think that did to mom and daddy that day? Oh, and then if that weren't enough, I went to the funeral. And at the funeral, you know what he said? Mom and daddy, he said this in the funeral. He said, mom and daddy, I just want you to know all things work together for good. God will do something. Something good's going to come out of this. Are you kidding me? I guarantee you nothing good came out of that for that mama. Oh, but she came, she, she went on later to have another child. She lost her baby. Oh, yeah, but she went on later to join the church and her husband got saved. She lost her baby. The, the reality is this. Sometimes, sometimes things happen that are out of our grasp. Sometimes we do things that are not in God's plan and guess what? God is not like an umpire going over there and dusting, the, dusting all the dirt off the plate. Sometimes the decisions you make are your plan. And those plans have repercussions that carry you to a lifetime. That you will die with some of those decisions. So Mark, what's the hope? man? Well, if that's true, then what, what, what do I do? Tell you what you do. We've got to fall in love with the Word of God, number one. We can't stand on God's promises if we don't know what they are. We will accept every fallacy and we'll start to tell them to people. We'll grow up with that fallacy and tell people. My, my grandmother, to the day she died, thought every time she dipped, brute and snuff, she was going to hell. Because some preacher along the way told her that if she sinned, she lost her salvation. God help me. God help us. 
to know that, that God's sacrifice and my redemption is so much stronger than anything that I could do after that. See, that's a hope. That's a promise I can stand on. Well, Mark, what do I do then when I lose somebody like that? I tell you what you do. You realize that God's got something for you so big and so wonderful. That maybe one night, in the middle of all the crazy, in the middle of all the, the framework of you trying to get through life, that maybe just one night, the pastor will get a notion to set a table up here. In position right here on one side is a couple who lost a baby. Can't explain it. Never can fix it. But they can sit here and they can brag on the goodness of God. And they're sitting right there in this room. Right now. That's what we do. Is that, that Watch this. We are overcomers. Hear me. By the blood of the Lamb. I get that. But do you know what it also says? We're overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's what we do. They didn't stand up and give some fallacy promise. Because you know what? It was more than they could bear. It didn't all work out. But God is still God. Tonight, you're in this room. And here's what I believe to be true. No guitars, no nothing. The hope that I have for this world is that when I am pressed down and I am overwhelmed and I, and I am pressed b- b- to a point to where I can no longer handle it, that there's a God in heaven standing there saying, Calm, cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. Draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you. That there's, a, there's, a, there's a heaven, and there's a hope, and there's a lively hope. And he says in, in Psalms, he's a very present help in a time of trouble. That sometimes it's okay to not be okay. And that nobody tells us that because we have to go through life. And every one of you did it. And I, I submit to you that if I'd have done this in the room one by one and then showed it on the screen, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. When inside you're going, I'm not. That sometimes you can just look and say, you know what? I'm really struggling, man. Pray for me. The Bible speaks of that prayer and supplication and confessing that to an accountability partner. You know, tell a brother in this room. Because here's the, here's the thing, and you've all seen it. You know what I don't want? I don't want somebody disappearing from our congregation. And then they get down the road. And we say, what happened to them? Oh, yeah, you know what? I was just struggling at the time. Nobody asked you? Nobody talked to you? You didn't tell them? We didn't pray together? We didn't fast over it? We didn't bring you down front? You know, there's a guy named Freddie Clark today, Jr., that's, that's in, in a rehab center in Athens, Georgia. And, he, and he's 80 days clean because you guys came down here and we prayed for him. Guess what? The family said the family would have told you. There's no point. He's fallen a hundred times. Hey, I said it. He's going to keep falling. But it takes one time for God to get it right. One time. How many times did he knock on my heart's door? And I just said, I'm good. One time. You know what he did? He knew what it would take for me to fall flat on my face. And he allowed it to happen. And that's a good God. He's a good, good father. I don't know where you are tonight. But I want to give you the promise now. I want to give you the promise. God loves you. God is intimately, intimately involved with every outflowing of your life. Let's go back to that sovereignty. Nothing has come into your life that God has not allowed. It doesn't mean it's going to be fun. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to fall flat on your face. Because here's what I know. Sometimes 
God would rather be the lifter of your head in Psalms 3 than you walking around with piety thinking you've got it all figured out and I'm fine. Sometimes he wants to be the lifter of your head. Sometimes he wants to be the one to embrace you. He wants to be daddy, Abba Father. He wants to be more than just God in the heaven who forgave. He wants to be the intimate husband to wrap his arms around a, a feeble, hurting, and afraid wife and say, I got you. So tonight, maybe it's falling apart at the seams. It might be where you can no longer bear it. It's time to give it to God. Tonight, something so bad might have happened to you, and it's a scar so deep that you've never let out. And rather than just throwing out all things work together for good, why don't we just realize that God wants to take that scar and he wants to remind you of his scars and the finished work on the cross. And he wants to embrace you and he wants to love you. And he wants to take that scar and he wants to let you do something with it. He wants to let you use it. The power of your testimony. There's fears in this room. anxiety and depression. You know what God wants to do? God wants, well, here, I love this. He wants to say, I put a song in your heart. I know you're afraid. Get up there and sing with all the fear that you have. Isn't that right, Martika? Just get up there and sing anyway. You know why? Because I'm going to sing through you. Or maybe you're like the Apostle Paul. I'm crucified. I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not me. It's Christ that lives within me. I wonder tonight, would you reach out to him? No guitars, no sound, no music. The altar is open for you tonight. I'm going to pray right here. I'm going to ask my wife to come down and pray with me. No music. No fluff. I want to grab God's promises tonight. I want to be like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we're just going to serve the Lord. Husbands, mamas, daddies, individuals, find somewhere in this room to pray tonight. Just, just find somewhere to get along in the stillness of this room. Just find somewhere to pray right now. Stephanie, would you pray with me down here? I'm going to give you a time to pray.